to it. So let's pray and then uh, we'll then we'll read it. God, thanks for this morning, Lord, for the chance to come and uh, just got to spend time together as a church family and to celebrate baptisms, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who are making public declarations of their faith. God, the chance to gather around them is as a church and to God, to walk alongside them in all the things that it means to be a church. God, to encourage them, support them, love them as the scriptures command, to point out graciously and lovingly the truth of, of God's word. Lord, we look forward to uh, being able to confess to one another as a church. Lord, to sharing the gospel with one another and um, God, all that it is to be a church. God, I pray that when we gather together on Sunday mornings that our time in worship and our time in fellowship and in the word, God, that it would just, it would just be an, uh, an overflow, another expression of what it is to be a church family, God. I pray that this morning's time together would be uh, one where we're able to just joyfully and, and with an atti- a spirit and attitude of celebration, God, come together, united by the gospel, uh, a church family, God, we might look to you glorify Christ in all that we do this morning, be encouraged and challenged from your word, be built up by our relationships and our fellowship with one another, uh, and, and just kind of recommit this morning that we're linking arms together as a, as a church family who wants to proclaim the gospel here in our community and to the ends of the earth. Uh, God, would your spirit be here, knit us together in that way, challenge us, convict us. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I'm going to read uh, 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 13. It says this, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may obtain salvation, which is from Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let me give some contextual kind of basics about 2 Timothy before we start working our way through the passage. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are what are known as the pastoral epistles. They're a little different from the other letters that Paul writes in that Rather than being written to an entire church congregation, entire group of believers in a particular city, the pastoral epistles are writ from one individual, Paul, to one individual, either Timothy or Titus. Because of that, uh, kind of by their very nature, they feel a little bit different. They're a little less theological. There's theology in all of Paul's writings because all of Scripture tells us about who God is and what that means for our lives. 
Um, Paul was an incredible theological mind, and so he, he includes theology in everything. But these pastoral epistles uh, are heavy on the practical. Specifically, they're heavy on the practical for how is it that uh, uh, Titus and Timothy are to shepherd the believers in the cities where they're serving and where they're ministering. As an extra little kind of tidbit about the historical time frame where this was written, First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus are all written after all the kind of biological information we get about Paul in the book of Acts. All of his missionary journeys are complete. First Timothy and Titus are thought to have been written um, after Paul's first imprisonment. It's tradition holds that he did make it to Spain, like he talks about wanting to do in the book of Romans, and that he wrote First Timothy and Titus while on that. Um, portion of his life and ministry. And then 2 Timothy, he writes during his final imprisonment. Um, prevailing thought is that it was written in like 65, 66, 67 AD. 67 AD is when Paul was finally martyred and he died. As a point of uh, relation and comparison there, Romans was written in 57 AD. So we're about eight, nine, 10 years later. And Paul sits down to write 2 Timothy to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, leading the church there. Paul's left him there in order to serve and shepherd the church in Ephesus. And he writes more or less to say, I want to see you one more time. He knows that the end of his life is near. He writes in order to say, this is what it looks like to carry on the work of the gospel uh, in my absence. This is what it means and this is what it should entail. And he does it from prison with his martyrdom uh, standing just kind of before him. And so what 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, what they contain are these incredible instructions for what disciple-making should look like. We get a little hung up because we call them pastoral epistles, and, and you, you look at me and you think, Tim, you're the pastor, therefore these instructions must apply to you. These pastoral epistles are incredible uh, summaries and looks into just what, what does it look like to faithfully do ministry as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see this morning is an extension of what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked at the anatomy of a disciple-making heart, that it invests in individuals, it offers protective encouragement, it has multiplication in view. This week, we're going to talk about multiplication specifically. What does that mean? What does it require? What does it mean to be a disciple-maker who's looking kind of generations down the road in disciple making. And this is what we're going to see. That for a disciple maker, multiplication is the goal and grace is the fuel. Multiplication is the goal, grace is the fuel. Let's start with the goal. If you look at 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is maybe the New Testament's best picture or summary of what multiplication in disciple-making should look like. There are four generations of disciples here. What you have heard from me, that's Paul, generation number one. Paul takes the truth of the gospel, he imparts it, he speaks it, he preaches it, he writes it, he's talking about it everywhere that he goes, and so that's generation number one. Paul says, what you, that's Timothy in this case, or Titus. Timothy's not the only person Paul discipled. He discipled uh, multiple other people along the way. We saw that in Romans chapter 16. Um, That's kind of how we launched into this discussion about what disciple making is. And so that's generation number two. What you, Timothy, have heard from me, 
generation number one here, in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men. That's generation number three, that Timothy is supposed to take what Paul has entrusted to him, and he's supposed to commit it to faithful men. The word therefore commit, the actual Greek word, your translation might say entrust, is paratithemi. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 23, 46, when he's hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This idea of kind of laying the fullness of like everything that Jesus is into the hands of the Lord. In this instance, Paul says, take the fullness of the gospel, everything that it is to follow Jesus, the truth of his sinless life, his death on the cross, his triumph out of the grave at the resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, his return that's coming at some point. Take all of that and commit it to faithful men. Entrust it to them. Give it to them. All of it. Lay it upon them so that they can do what? Teach others. That's generation number four. So that they might teach others. That's multiplication. There's the vision. That's the goal. That a disciple maker's goal is multiplication. It looks Corey made a nice little graphic there. We see it in 2 Timothy 2 2. Let me put a little bit of like flesh and bone on this image. Uh, that's me in the middle of that picture in the Mizzou t-shirt. To my right is, uh, immediate right, is a guy named Danny Hinton. To his right is a man named Kenan Vaughn. To my left in the blue shirt is Trent Rains. And then to Trent's left in the black jacket is a man named George Turlip. Uh, starting in high school, but also while we were in college together, Danny discipled me. Danny was discipled by Kenan when Danny was in high school. While uh, I was in college, my last year at college, Trent was there at the University of Missouri. I discipled Trent. We would meet together for breakfast um, every Thursday morning. And then Trent turned around and discipled George. Five uh, generations there. I could go further to the right of Kenan. Kenan was discipled by a man named Soup Campbell. Soup Campbell was discipled by a man named Herb Hodges. Herb, Soup, they don't know me. They don't know my name. Uh, they probably never will. But Herb takes the truth of the gospel and invests it in Soup. Soup turns around and teaches that to faithful men, Kenan. Kenan teaches that to others, Danny. And I, to Herb Hodges, am literally just kind of nameless, faceless, others, generations down the line. That's discipleship. I've heard... Uh, Kenan and Danny both used this picture at various times. This was taken in 2014. We were all together at a uh, discipleship weekend, and we, we gathered up to take a picture because the image was pretty cool of the line of discipleship. And I've heard Kenan and Danny talk about this picture, and Kenan, uh, bless his heart, can't ever remember George's name. And so he'll, he'll talk about Soup and Herb and then Danny and me and Trent, and then he says and others, and he points at George, because he can't, he can't ever remember George's name. But that's kind of the way that discipleship is supposed to work, is that there are others down the line that you might not ever know, that you might not ever meet, but you're making disciples with multiplication in view. You could swap George out of this picture, and Trent 
while living in Topeka for a number of years, he discipled a group of high school kids who were a part of Topeka Young Life. Um, I don't know any of them, but Trent just recently got a phone call from one of his guys from Topeka, who's now the president of Bucks at his college. Bucks is a Christian fraternity, Brothers Under Christ. He got a phone call from one of these guys that he discipled at Topeka Young Life, who's now leading Bucks, and he said, Trent, would you be willing to come and speak at our Bucks chapter one night? And Trent was like, uh, I can, why? And the kid said, because you're the reason that this exists. That's discipleship. The kid goes through Topeka Young Life, he's discipled by Trent, he goes to his college campus and he says, I wanna start a Bucks chapter. I wanna disciple other people. It's an incredible picture of multiplication. That is the goal, that there would be others down the line from you. While we were texting back and forth because I had lost this picture, uh, Danny and I kind of sent some texts back and forth and we were talking about this whole thing. And at one point he said, that's a strong branch of a discipleship tree. Herb to Soup to Kenan to Danny to me to Trent to George and on down. So where I want to start this morning is with a question for you. What's your branch? Who's on the left? Who would you plug in there? Who's on the right? Who's discipled you? If we're following Jesus, we're to be disciple-making, which means there would be a branch there. Who is that? If, if this is the vision of multiplication, if this is the, the vision of disciple-making, where do we even start? How does this begin? If I don't have a branch, what do I do? Let me define some terms for us this morning really quickly. A disciple simply means learner or follower. That's the technical definition of disciple. And we're learners or followers of Jesus. The last thing I'm trying to do in my life is create more Tims. Lord knows we don't need any more of those. So I don't want Trent primarily to be me. We're discipling toward following Jesus, toward learning from Jesus. A discipler then, if a disciple is a learner or a follower, a discipler is a reproducer. That's what we're trying to do. And then discipleship is the process by which a discipler engages with a disciple. And you are passing on. Um, You're entrusting the truth of the gospel, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.2. We'll talk more about the process at another time. This morning, I just want us to be captivated by the vision. The 21st century sees church as an activity. American Christianity in our day and age views church as a thing that you go and do. That you check it off the list like you would anything else in your weekly schedule. The New Testament never pictures church that way. Church is something that you're a part of all the time. From the moment you become become saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ to the moment that you die, you are the church. And that means that discipleship is a lifestyle, not an activity. It's a lifestyle that we engage in for a lifetime. It's something that we do over the course of all of our years of following Jesus. Andreas Kostenberger says it this way, Disciple-making is an all-consuming, incredibly demanding call to put Jesus first. Nothing less is worthy of him. If it is less, it is not worthy. This picture of multiplication in 2 Timothy 2.2, is sandwiched in between what I'm going to call some needs or some requirements of disciple-making. And that's why we could have spent this entire morning just talking about 2 Timothy 2.2 and multiplication. But I thought a bigger kind of zoomed-out look here 
would, would show us what drives this process forward. And the answer is grace. The answer is always grace. We're talking about, over the course of the last year or so, what it is to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, that we're gospel-centered. It's grace that makes us gospel-centered. That we're humbly unified. It's grace that unites us together as a church. That we're mission-driven. It's grace that compels us to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. That we're pursuing holiness. It's grace that motivates us to align our lives with Scripture. That we're disciple-making. It's grace that provides the fuel for this process. So three of these needs in disciple-making. The first one comes from verse 1. You, therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. A disciple maker needs to be a disciple. And grace is what makes us disciples. You can't invest the truth of the gospel in someone if you have not received the truth of the gospel in your own life. You need to, as Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is what makes us followers of Christ. It makes us disciples. That's the message of Romans, that you have sin that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with the Lord in and of yourself. You can't do enough good stuff. You can't obey the commands of Scripture well enough. You're not just worthy of it in and of yourself. You need grace, and God gave us that grace in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died a death on the cross, was buried in the tomb, resurrected on the third day, and ascended into heaven. By that, we're saved. Grace makes us disciples. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you can be, and that can happen this morning. You can receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, have your sin forgiven, and become a disciple. That's something that you can do today, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that you need that grace more than you need your next breath. It's more important for you to receive the grace of Jesus Christ than it is for you to do anything else in your life, and you become a disciple the day you're saved by that grace. You become a disciple maker by some intentionality in your relationships, which we'll get to here in a minute. Jump down to verse 8. This is the second need here. A disciple maker needs to be gospel-centered. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory." Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That might be the most succinct definition of what it is to be gospel-centered that we could possibly come up with. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember him in everything. You wake up to go to work, remember Jesus Christ. You're at home fighting with the toddlers over putting their toys away, remember Jesus Christ. You've got to go spend some time with the in-laws this weekend and you're not sure how you're going to do it, remember Jesus Christ. He'll get you through it. Remember Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be gospel-centered, that in everything that you do, you remember Christ. Risen from the dead, descended from David, the only sufficient Savior, the means by which you are saved, the grace which propels you in all of your life. Don't forget it. That memory, that memory of Jesus Christ on the cross, the remembrance of grace, it drives what you do, why you do it, when you do it, how you do it. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That by placing our faith in him and receiving grace, that has now changed everything about who we are. It drives everything about who we are. And Paul says it drives us in a particular direction. Verse 10, this is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may obtain salvation. Last week, I I said that 
being mission-driven and evangelism is not in competition with being a disciple-maker in discipleship. They work together. They complement one, one another. Not, com- not competitors, compliments. Why are we mission-driven? Well, because we're centered on the gospel and we want others to be saved. Why are we a disciple-maker? Well, because we're centered on the gospel and we want other people to be saved. The reality of those who are far from the Lord compels us to evangelize. The reality of those who are far from the Lord compels us to be a disciple-maker. Paul says, That's, this is why I endure everything. Because I've got others in mind and I want them to be saved and built up and mature in the faith and sent out so that they can teach others. A disciple maker needs to be gospel centered. Then verses three through seven, this is where I kind of want us to, to camp out for the rest of our time together. Because what verses three through seven do are they, is uh, it lays out three different kind of pictures of a disciple maker. A soldier, that's verses three and four, an athlete in verse five, and a farmer in verse six. And then in verse seven, Paul says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Reflect on a soldier, on an athlete, on a farmer, and you'll understand what it is to be a disciple maker, Paul says. I want to submit that what knits these three images together uh, are a few things. First and foremost, endurance. A gospel maker needs or a disciple maker needs endurance. It's also hard work. It's also lifestyle uh, that kind of unite these three things. But let's reflect on each one individually. First one is a soldier. What is it about a soldier that sheds light on being a disciple maker? I want to read from the United States Soldier's Creed. It says this, I am an American soldier. I am a warrior and a member of a team. I serve the people of the United States and live the army values. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. I am disciplined, physically and mentally tough, trained and proficient in all my warrior tasks and drills. I always maintain my arms, my equipment, and myself. I am an expert, and I am a professional. I stand ready to deploy, engage, and destroy the enemies of the United States of America in close combat. I am a guardian of freedom and the American way of life. I am an American soldier. What is it about being a soldier that's like being a disciple maker? Well, Paul gives us some of it, that no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. But we can draw some more reflections from that. Soldiers put the mission first. Soldiers don't forsake their comrades in battle. Soldiers prize obedience to the, to the mission or to their commander over their own comfort. Soldiers drill in advance so that when battle arrives, they know what to do. What is it to be a disciple maker? Well, it's to not get entangled in worldly affairs. That we understand that there's a mission to share the truth of God, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation to the ends of the earth. And we don't get tied down in worldly affairs because we're so laser focused on that mission that we're not getting bogged down with the stuff of the world as we pursue that. We put that mission first above everything else. We don't forsake our our brothers and sisters in the Lord in the midst of that life. We encourage one another. We stand next to one another. We've got a brother or sister that's down and struggling. We go over and we, we lift them up with support and with love and with care. At other times, though, it means when we've got a brother or sister who's straying away that we offer a gentle but firm rebuke from Scripture. We don't forsake one another. We prize obedience over comfort. 
That when the Lord calls us to share the gospel or to make disciples, to evangelize, whatever the case might be, that's more important to us than maybe feeling a little bit awkward about having a conversation about Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And we drill in advance. We prepare ourselves in advance. When you wake up in the morning and you had a long night because you've got one baby who's cutting teeth and can't sleep and you've got a toddler who just got his big boy bed and refuses to stay in it and you were awake 17 times overnight and you've got to be at work in the morning and you wake up and you drag yourself down to your recliner and you plop down in it and you set your Bible open and you've got to put toothpicks in your eyeballs in order to not fall asleep while you're trying to read a little bit from Psalms. That's drilling in advance because you know that you need the word of God and the truth of scripture in order to confront whatever it is that our broken world and our broken life is gonna set before you and you're willing to put in the work in advance to be prepared the rest of the time. Grace gives you the endurance to do that like a soldier. Verse five, if anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Let's reflect on an athlete a little bit. Paul tells us that an athlete competes according to the rules, but there's more about an athlete that we can draw out. And I'm not hitting everything, but we're considering what Paul has to say here. Athletes have passion for the game. Whatever their sport is, whatever their thing is, they're passionate about it. They always view themselves as in season. They might compete during one time of the year, but they're always practicing, always training, trying to get better, taking care of their body, resting, recovering. And they train in advance, similar to how a soldier would drill in advance. Okay, how does that shed light on being a disciple maker for us? Well, we compete according to the rules. God's given us those. He's given us a book full of those. This is what it looks like to live according to the rules that God has set in place. Not that we might be saved, but because we've been saved. And because God says, this is how you flourish. Here it is. Here's how you best live in the world that I've created and in relationship with me. Obey it, fueled by grace, motivated by grace. Obey this. We compete according to the rules. We have passion, passion for the Lord, passion for his word, passion for the lost to be saved, passion for younger believers to be matured and brought up and sent out. We always view ourselves as in season. We're not just in season from 11.30 to 12.40 while we're at church on Sunday mornings. Although you come to third service, so it's more like 11.40 to 12.40. And I usually preach kind of long, so it's more like 12.45. But we're not just in season there. We're not just in season during Christmas and Easter. This is a lifestyle. Disciple making is a lifestyle for a lifetime and we commit to it from the day we get saved to the day we go to be with the Lord. And we train in advance. We're studying, we're praying, we're in communion with the Lord. Why is it that we so dislike doping? That Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens didn't get into the Hall of Fame because they took performance-enhancing drugs. Why is it that that so bothers us? Because they cut corners. They didn't compete according to the rules. There was something about the way they went about their business that wasn't right. Maybe they had a passion for the game, but it appears they just had a passion for winning in their own statistics, and so they cut corners in order to make it happen. Paul says you compete according to the rules, like an athlete. Last, verse six, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. So reflect on a farmer a little bit. 
Farmers see the fruit of their toil. They see their crops. They, their lives are their work. I mean, they literally live their work. A farmer is not an eight to five kind of job. The sun comes up, you start doing farmer stuff. The sun goes down, you're probably still doing farmer stuff, and then you go to bed and you reset it the next day. A farmer plants in advance, like an athlete trains in advance, like a soldier drills in advance. Disciple making is the same. We will see the fruit of our labor. There, there are few things more exhilarating than when you're investing your life and the truth of the gospel into another person in a discipling relationship and you see them start to come alive in the Lord. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. You see them start using their gifts to serve the church or proclaim the gospel. You see them start to grasp what it is to really orient their life around the truth of Jesus Christ. And I'm not kidding. I mean, maybe it's because I'm a nerd and I'm a pastor, but I'm not kidding. It's like one of the most exciting things ever. We'll see that fruit, but we've got to live that work, a lifestyle for a lifetime. In 2014, uh, I was with some friends watching the Super Bowl, and I think it was a fairly compelling game that year because what I mostly remember is that I really wanted to see the game and I wasn't super worried about the commercials. When it's not a compelling game, I don't care about the game and I want to watch the commercials. I mostly remember from that year that I was uh, refilling my plate every commercial break. So commercials came on, I got more food, and that went on for the entire game. There were like 10 or 15 of us in the basement of a friend's house, and this one particular commercial comes on, and it's just one guy's voice. And all the, the chatter in the room stopped, and everybody was just so captivated by the commercial that we're all just staring at it. And then the commercial ended and the room was still silent. We all kind of looked at each other like, that was incredible. It was the voice of Paul Harvey. It was a truck commercial. But in this truck commercial, they had taken something that Paul Harvey had written for his radio show called God Made a Farmer. And they had put it over the top of these various images. And it offers this incredible picture of what the life of a farmer is like. Here it is. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need somebody with arms strong enough to wrestle a calf and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call hogs, tame cantankerous machinery, come home hungry, have to wait lunch until his wife's done feeding visiting ladies, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon and mean it. So God made a farmer. God said I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God had to have somebody willing to ride the ruts at double speed to get the hay in ahead of the rain clouds and yet stop in midfield and race to help when he sees the first smoke from a neighbor's place. So God made a farmer. 
God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners. Somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, and replenish the self-feeder, and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh, and then sigh, and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says, that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. It's a compelling picture. I would make an awful farmer. But that makes me want to try it. I mean, it sounds like so amazing. Consider what I say, 2 Timothy 2.7. The Lord will give you understanding. There's something about the life of a soldier. There's something about the life of an athlete. There's something about the life of a farmer that informs us what it is to live a life of a disciple maker. I took Paul Harvey's words there and I rewrote them. And on the day when Jesus ascended into heaven, he looked down on a world of immature believers and unsaved individuals and said, I want them to know me. So God called a disciple maker. God said, I need someone willing to rise early in the morning, search intently in the scriptures in the quiet of the pre-dawn hours, work all day at the office, get the kids to practice in piano lessons, and then spend time on the phone with a younger believer, encouraging them in their walk with the Lord before heading off to bed only to do it all again the next day. So God called a disciple maker. I need men and women who are strong enough to withstand the temptations of sin and the challenges of life in a broken world and yet gentle enough to extend grace to their sisters and brothers as they fumble their way forward doing the same women with thick skin and men with tender hearts, someone to call sinners to repentance, exhort believers to righteousness, serve the church with their giftedness and remain hungry for my glory. So God called a disciple maker. God said, I need somebody who's willing to take a phone call in the middle of the night when their sister in the Lord feels like their world is falling apart and then put on their clothes, drive across town and sit and cry with them, encouraging them that the Lord is faithful and that mercy and grace are new in the morning. I need someone who can explain the scriptures, identify false gospels, stir the affections of others toward the glory of Jesus. Someone who sees the masses to the ends of the earth and the individuals all around them and longs to meet both with a tenacity that only grace can supply. So God called a disciple maker. God had to have somebody willing to proclaim the truth of the gospel despite the scorn of the world and yet do so with a mix of grace and love that is so infectious for those around them that they can't help but want to be part of it. So God called a disciple maker. God said, I need men and women who are eager to defend the truth of my son with the ferocity of a lying while being tender enough to share their lives with the youngest of saints. It has to be someone who will give up a portion of their Sunday morning to hold babies in the nursery or corral toddlers in Sunday school and to do so with joy because they know they're instilling the image of Christ into the most impressionable of minds. Someone willing to sit at high school sporting events or attend middle school musicals in order to invest their lives in the truth of Christ into the next generation of his followers. So God called a disciple maker, someone who would hold the church together with a strong bond of familial love, who would laugh, weep, mourn, and celebrate alongside believers with an eye toward an untold number of future generations, and then rejoice exceedingly when one of those young disciples says they've started to do the same with their life.
also God called a disciple maker. Compelling. You might hear it and you might think to yourself, I would be awful at that. But I hope you hear it and you say to yourself, I'm willing to try. I'm willing to allow grace to fuel that kind of lifestyle. Grace supplies the endurance that disciple-making demands. This isn't a flash-in-the-pan sort of exercise. It's a lifelong lifestyle, something that we live day by day. Disciple-making isn't primarily a program that we take part in for a short time and then we move on from. We don't check making disciples off of our Christian bucket list or something like that. We need endurance, endurance that's grace-fueled and grace-driven so that we might be strong in the grace of the Lord, that we might be sustained by His grace, living lives centered on the gospel and multiplying that faith into the lives of others. And when your tank is empty, you look into the tomb and see that it's empty too. When your batteries need recharged or your patience needs refilled, you need only to look to the throne and see it filled with the glory of God in order to have the grace necessary to go on. For a disciple maker, multiplication is the goal and grace is the fuel. Grace is what drives every step in this process. Grace is what makes you a disciple. Grace is what helps you endure. Grace is what holds you in a gospel-centered life. And so I want to offer a challenge this morning. Brian, you guys can come on up. And that challenge is this. You're probably closer to being ready to disciple someone than you're willing to give yourself credit for. I think typically what happens is that we think to ourselves, oh, disciple-making, that's for people who are more mature than I am. The reality is that's simply not the case. J.C. Ryle says this, it is better to work with feeble instruments than not to work at all. There are people within this church who have faithfully served the Lord and followed Him longer than I've been alive. You've got so much to offer our congregation. We're, we're a pretty young church. There are moms and dads, men and women in this congregation who would love nothing more than to sit down with you whatever time of day they need to wake up in order to make that happen so that they can hear you talk about parenting young children, so that they can hear you talk about the difficulties of navigating sending kids off to college, so they can hear you talk about how you've applied the gospel to your life over decades of faithfulness. You've got something to give, and there are multitudes of people within this congregation who would love to benefit from that. And we kind of think to ourselves like, oh, does that mean I need to carve out like 10 extra hours of time or something like that? No, it doesn't mean that. Are you eating dinner? Yeah. Invite someone over. Let them sit there with you. I had a guy who discipled me for like 10 years who used to say, you got to eat somewhere. That was his way of saying, come over and eat with me. And I would go and just get to be there with his family and watch how he interacted with his kids and with his wife and like he didn't even have to teach me something. We didn't sit down and have a lesson. I just got to see it lived out. Young, younger people in this congregation, stop. we got to stop acting like we have all the answers. And we need to see those who've been walking with Jesus longer than us and say, can I just get some time with you? <laughs> hear you talk about what it's like to follow Jesus through cancer 
what it's like to face death, what it's like to look life's challenges square in the eye and meet them head on with the truth of the gospel. My wife is discipled by Renee Sturtz. Um, Renee's husband, Roger, is the head coach of Liberty's basketball team. We go to a lot of high school boys' basketball games, not because my wife is like a huge basketball, high school basketball fan, but because it gives her a couple hours on like a Tuesday night to sit in the bleachers next to Renee Sturtz and just hear Renee talk about life. People in, in this life stage, we need those voices. We need to find those and get ourselves as close to them as possible so that there's something on the right side of our branch, someone pouring into us. But then people in this generation, there are younger folks in this church. We've got a whole student ministry full of kids, full of students who would love nothing more than to hear what it means to follow Jesus in middle school or high school, to hear you talk about what it's like to try to transition that into college or into a first job or to navigate the early parts of a career or finding a spouse or whatever the case might be. And you have that. You don't You don't have to be able to stand up and preach sermons in order to be able to tell someone what it means to follow Jesus in their current stage of life. That's disciple-making. It requires grace. It requires endurance. And so let that grace propel you. Let it propel you into salvation for the first time. If you've not ever received that, let it propel you into remembering and centering your life on Jesus Christ and let it propel you into an enduring life of disciple-making. That's the vision. Multiplication is the goal. Grace is the fuel. Let's worship together. You can stand up.